in the spirit of that beautiful song and prayer, I want to invite you to keep praying with me. Father, we do pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, show us Christ. And as we see him, as we behold him in his glory, as we, as we sit and submit to his truth today, we pray, Lord, w- would you just help us to, to grow in love? We pray for peace from the Prince of Peace to percolate down into the cracks and crevices of our soul today so that we would be changed. We do pray, Lord, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim as we behold your glory and goodness. Father, we know all too well that we are prone to make things about ourselves. Our hearts are idol factories, and, uh, and we can just bend even truth uh, toward, toward our own selfish inclinations. And we pray, Lord, as we incline our hearts and minds to your word today, that you would guard us from that. Father, the passage that we're about to read. We know many have heard here before, and we pray that you would guard us from yawning at your truth. Those of us who are familiar with these words would not let the familiar ring cause our minds to go on autopilot. God, we pray that we would grapple with your truth and that you would guard us from error and grow us up into it. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Well, as I was praying and preparing for today's message, the refrain of an age-old children's game kept coming back to me this week. Regardless of your age or stage, most of you can relate to playing hide-and-seek. Yes? Show of hands. Hide-and-seek. Most of us. Now, there is, I've learned, a lot of different variations for hide-and-seek, but the basic principle is that you've got hiders and you've got seekers. And when they're done counting and waiting, the seeker will eventually yell out for all to hear, this is the way we did it at home in New York, ready or not, here I come. And that always felt like an appropriate warning. Because the appointed time had come, the waiting period was over, and it didn't matter whether you had a good hiding spot whether you had a bad hiding spot or whether you didn't have a hiding spot yet at all, it was go time. And some of y'all need to repent because you are just profuse cheaters at hide and seek. You remember peeking through your fingers and slurring the count, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, like an auctioneer. The point, of course, is that whether you were ready or not, it was happening. It was time to find. And in the passage we're considering today in Luke's glorious gospel, Jesus is effectively doing the same thing. He's warning us that he is coming back. No one knows the day or the hour, and some will be ready on that day. And tragically, some will not. His exhortation to us, then, is to watch, to prepare, to be ready. Let's read now as we continue 
our march through Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 12, we'll pick it up in verse 35. If you're using our church Bible and the seat backs in front of you, it's on page 819, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. This is God's word to us, his people. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and will have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act in according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is God's word. And where we begin in verse 35 of chapter 12, Jesus gives us two very clear word pictures of how his followers are to act. He says, first, stay dressed for action. And then he says, secondly, keep your lamps burning. Dressed for action, lamps burning. Now that first one, the, the dressed for action bit, is an interesting phrase in the Greek in which the New Testament was written, Koine Greek. Literally that phrase means, let your loins stay girded. Thank you. I got, a, I got a little half chuckle over here. We just don't talk that way today, do we? Let your loins stay girded. And although that might sound a bit foreign to us today, those who would have heard Jesus' words during that time would have known exactly what he was talking about. You see, in that time, in the first century, they, they would have worn, in the ancient Near East, uh, long robes, flowing robes. And if they were going to move fast, what they would do is gather up those robes and tuck them into their belt to make it easier for them to run, to make it easier for them to be on the move. That's precisely the word picture that Jesus is pointing to here. He's saying, get ready. 
be ready to be on the move. This gird up your loins call to action should also, I think it's intended also, to call to mind a very important picture from the Old Testament that God gave to his people at the Exodus. Remember a little something called the Passover? When God told his people, he's about to break them away from their bondage to the Egyptian overlords, and he tells them, kill a spotless lamb and spread its blood over the doorposts of your house. What a graphic image. And then he had them eat the lamb they had sacrificed. He said, eat it how? He said, eat it in haste. In haste. Let me read you a little snippet from Exodus 12 and see if you can connect the dots here. Exodus 12, 11. In this manner you shall eat it, God tells through the mouth of Moses, his people, the Israelites, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the million-dollar question, I think, then, is this. Why all this hurry? Why all this haste? Well, the Lord's going to visit them on this great and terrible day. And He's going to send an angel of death to destroy His enemies and deliver His people. So they had better be ready, right? When the Lord comes, they had better be ready for God's deliverance when it broke through. Back to Luke 12. Are you seeing the connection here? We've got Jesus, who Scripture tells us just so happens to be the perfect and spotless Passover lamb. And what's he telling his followers? The same thing, right? I'm coming. Deliverance is coming, and you better be ready. Your loins better be girded up. You better be ready to move when I arrive because salvation is at hand. Gird up your loins for action, Jesus says. And the second word picture he gives right out the chute is keep your lamps burning. That one's a pretty simple concept for us to understand, right? Jesus is essentially saying, keep the lights on. Be ready for me. And then he proceeds to throw a parable alongside this kingdom truth, this heavenly truth, to drive home his point. Look at verse 36 with me. Jesus says, Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he knocks. Okay, confession time. How many of you have ever had a moment where the doorbell rang... Or you heard a knock at the front door, and you were not ready. Don't share. Don't share. Many of us can think of those moments, right, where we're in the shower, and we hear that ding-dong, and your heart just goes, oh, right? Suffice it to say, this is not what Jesus wants from his people when he returns, scrambling as quick as they can to to clothe themselves and get to where they need to be. No, he wants your hand on the doorknob. As soon as he arrives, 
for his people to be ready to open the door and receive him. What Jesus does next, friends, this is just overwhelming, I think. It's stunning. Jesus pronounces a blessing statement. It's, it's literally a beatitude upon those who are ready for him. Those who he calls awake when the master gets back. What's so stunning, you might say, about this blessing statement? Well, check it out. In verse 37, look with me here. For the servants who are awake who are ready for their master when he arrives, he's going to do something totally upside down. It's almost preposterous. That's why he uses the word truly. Truly, I say to you. In Greek, that word literally means amen. It's an emphatic. What's so big a deal, Jesus, about this blessing, about what's, what the master's about to do? Well, Jesus says, for those servants who are ready for their master's return, the master, this is all upside down to us, the master is going to dress himself for service, and he's going to tell the servants to recline at table while he proceeds to don the waiter's robe, the apron, and serve them. What kind of a master would ever do something like this? Taking on the very form of a servant? Well, gee, I think that's sounding like a bell, isn't it? The answer is, of course, the kind of master who's telling this very parable. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a gracious master. I think there's points when you're reading Scripture, you just got to stop and pull up and say, Lord, help me to grasp just a little deeper today your grace and your love and your kindness. Christian, what a gracious master. You serve. We do wait, friends and fellow servants of Jesus. We wait for his return. And that waiting requires us to live in a very different way than the world around us lives. And yet somehow, because of his lavish grace and love, the master, when he comes back, is prepared to even us, even we unworthy servants, he's prepared to invite us to his wedding feast, to seat us at his table. This is how it ends for you in Christ. And I don't know, I'm I'm preaching at myself, but I, I feel like for those of us who are inclined just to see the world as a bit cloudy, just to perhaps a little too quickly spend time spiritually sulking our way through life, Oh, how we should be reminded, despite the the hardships, yes, and the the trials through which we walk, we, we need to just take stock afresh this morning that no one, no one has it better than this. I dare you to find someone who's got it better than we do in Jesus. 
the star NFL quarterback, the supermodel, the most gifted singer or artist or the richest person, doesn't have to worry about a thing. Do you envy them? Stop it. Don't do that. No one has it better than servants of this master. Followers of Jesus, do not leave here today bracketed though you may be by the circumstances of this life. Don't leave here today sour or disheartened because the king just said he's coming back. And for those who are waiting on him, oh, the joy that will be theirs, that will be ours when the master returns. Do you believe it? You believe it? Let's pick up in verse 38. We'll continue to walk our way through the text. Jesus says, if, if he comes, if the master comes in the second watch or the third watch of the night, well, there's been a lot of ink spilt on exactly when this translate to, uh, translates to. You see, there were different watches depending upon the culture back then. The Jewish watches of the night were... Three or were four hours apiece. There was three Jewish watches of the night, but there was four Roman watches of the night. So the hours differ a little bit. And you get biblical commentators who say, well, it was technically this hour to this hour. And then others who say, no, no, no. He's thinking the Jewish conception of watches in the night. And I think, although that's fascinating, most of us can just good-naturedly smile a bit and roll our eyes and say, don't miss the forest through the trees. Whether Jesus is talking about the Jewish second or third watch of the night or the Roman second or third watch of the night, his point is still the same, is it not? He's coming at a time that is both unknown and unexpected. At a time that's not, listen, that's not convenient when others would be tempted to do something else. Like, you know, Sleep in the middle of the night, in the, in the wee hours of the morning, his servants, Jesus said, should always be waiting, expectant, and ready. Now, I think it hardly needs to be said, but just in case, Jesus is clearly not advocating sleeplessness, right? It's okay to sleep. Psalm 127 says, he gives to his beloved sleep. This sleeping then, this not sleeping, this staying awake, this staying alert is a metaphor for how you live your life. Ready, dialed in to the master and what he's doing when he's coming. Now, the scene shifts here in verse 39 from the servants who are waiting for the master to return to what I'll call a home invasion scenario. Jesus says in verse 39, if the master of the house knew that he was going to be robbed, and he knew that the thief was a-coming, you had better believe that he would be ready. I mean, right? Wouldn't you? If you knew... That there was a thief and you knew exactly when he was coming, <laughs> you would make the necessary precautions to prevent your home from being robbed. 
So Jesus says, consider this your warning. In fact, this thief motif, as I'll call it here, for Jesus to return as, as it were a thief in the night is repeated again and again throughout the Scriptures. I'm just going to give you three examples, and I'm sorry, I should have put these on the screen. I didn't. Just, just drink these in. Get, get the point here. So 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. Paul writes under the instruction of the Holy Spirit, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter says so as well, 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. One more. We could keep going. Just, just one more. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, Jesus said, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. You think the Bible's telling us something? He's coming. And we don't know when. Application. Be ready. Readiness. Alertness. The point, of course, because the time is unexpected, is that we should be prepared at all times. Prepared at all times. Urgently awaiting our Master's return. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us any ambiguity. I mean, the point's clear anyway, but Jesus decides he's just going to twist the knife a little bit in verse 40. He's going to bottom line it for us. So whatever else, friend, you might try to take away from this passage, good stuff, this needs to be, verse 40 needs to be the central point, the central takeaway in your heart and in your head. Be ready. The Son of Man is coming at a time when you do not expect. Now, it's just so obvious, it's hardly worth spending any time at all explaining to you that if you are listening to somebody on the TV or the radio, a smooth snake oil salesman, yeah. right, and... <laughs> What you don't want to do is buy into the lies or to, to be carried away in a system that would presume to say, we figured it out. We have calculated just so perfectly the algorithm for Daniel's weeks that we know when he's coming. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again and again and again. We're told He's coming, and on purpose, He doesn't tell us when. So that the disposition, the posture of our hearts and our faith is one of perpetual readiness. Now, if you're like me, that's hard. How can you be 
alert at all times, like on edge, ready to respond. We're prone to spiritual sloth. That's the gravitational pull of our lives. You got a purpose to be ready. Whatever else you hear from this text, friend, please hear this. You're to live your Christian life in a way that is prepared, that's earnestly yearning and desiring the return of the master. More on that, but um, it's probably worth asking here as we see all of these different word pictures coalescing together. Listen to them all together. Keep your lamps burning. Keep your robes tucked in your belt. Stay awake. Be ready to open the door. All of these different word pictures, Jesus is intending to drive home the same very simple point in our soul. I'm coming back. Wait on me. Wait on me. Now, I wish we had uh, all kinds of time just to drill down on this biblical discipline, this biblical principle of waiting on the Lord. It's a very big deal in your Bible. But let me just say this simply by way of application. Biblical waiting is an active waiting. It is not this. How many Dr. Dr. Seuss fans in the house? Some parents and grandparents with their hands up. For those of you who are Dr. Seuss Seuss enthusiasts, either easy for me to say, this is a picture, a blurry one at that, of... uh, of a snapshot of the book called Oh, the Places You'll Go, where Dr. Seuss is describing something he calls the waiting place, where you're waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, waiting for a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with girls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Don't you love Dr. Seuss? (laughs) And yet he paints a picture here that is altogether different than the biblical picture of waiting. You see, Dr. Seuss is visually illustrating waiting as a passive thing. They're just sort of sitting around, twiddling their thumbs, waiting as in biding their time for what they're yearning for. That's not, friends, the biblical picture. It's certainly not the picture Jesus is laying forth here of what it means to wait, what it means to wait for him and for his return. Friend, no one is ever accidentally ready. Husbands, just ask your wives. You're going out on a date. No one is ever accidentally ready. If you're ready for Jesus, you didn't get there by osmosis. You didn't get there like this, by sitting around. If you're ready for Jesus, you are actively waiting. You are preparing by being about his business. What's that mean? Well, Jim here, just a moment ago, is a great example It means you serve the Lord with your gifts and your abilities, with your time. It's not always fireworks. You don't always write it in the sky. But but, but you're serving the kingdom of God and the advancement of its purposes in big and little ways as you've been gifted. You prioritize serving. 
What else does waiting look like? Well, it looks like reading, friends. It looks like applying yourself to learn the things of God. Where do we find those? In Scripture. Why do we make a big deal about this? Oh, because we're really a very booky bunch. No. The Christian is saturated in the Scriptures because the God of Scriptures is our Savior. And the way you learn about Him, the way you hear His voice is to read His true and eternal Word. You want to get ready for the King? Read what He says. Right? You want to get ready for the King? Serve, read, and pray. And pray. What kind of a relationship grows without communication? You are hardwired, friend, to commune with your maker, with your savior, with your sustainer. You get it. Let's move. Verse 41. At this point in Jesus' discourse, Peter interjects with a question. I think it's a fair question, a good question. He asks, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, Jesus' answer is eventually going to be yes. But notice that his answer is not immediate. I mean, it's even kind of awkward, right? Peter asks a very black and white question, and Jesus whoo, goes off on a parable, right? Instead, Jesus answers, Peter, uh, Jesus answers Peter's question with yet another related parable. He begins with the picture of a wise and faithful household manager, one who's over all the rest of the master's servants, one who's charged with giving food to those under his care. Who's this parable for, Jesus? Well, it's surely for the apostles, at least. Right? Remember what Jesus said to Peter after the resurrection? Like three times, feed my sheep. Jesus is telling a parable to answer Peter's question. Hey, who's this for, Jesus? About a manager who's in charge of giving his followers, his sheep, their proper food at their proper time. Certainly, absolutely, these words apply most directly to Peter and to the rest of the twelve. That's so clear. And yet, take a gander down at verse 48. Jesus ends... This little section, this pericope, by saying, everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. So this is for the apostles. This is for the overseers. This is for the stewards who are set above God's people, managing them, overseeing them. And yet this is also for everyone. So, for those of us in this room, myself included, and at the top of the list, we got to lean in here, right? I mean, pastors and elders, ministry leaders, those on the MOC overseeing the, uh, the events and the, uh, the conduct and, and the trajectory of Friendship Community Church, we're part of everyone. On a, on a smaller scale, we're certainly charged with, with feeding the flock, equipping them, teaching them through biblical truth, and leading them in the way of righteousness. Sunday school teachers, 
Bible study leaders? Let's just peel back another layer. How about parents? Guardians of children that the Lord has entrusted these precious little souls to your care to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Has the Lord set you over his sheep? You bet he has. How about anyone with a job? All those resources, never as many as you'd like, but in comparison with most of the world throughout most of human history, Abundant resources that you have been given to steward. That's the right word. You are, friend, a steward. You don't own a thing. Not even your body. You've been bought with a price. Honor the Lord with your body. Honor the Lord with what you have. I like how one biblical commentator who has long since passed, generations ago, he summed up Jesus' words here in this way. He said, Jesus' words apply to every individual, but with greater force to those who are in a position of stewardship, those to whom much has been entrusted and from whom, consequently, much will indeed be required. All right, verses 45 and 46. Up to this point... We've seen primarily examples of faithful waiting from Jesus, dutiful stewardship, servants who are ready for their master in his return. But here in verses 45 and 46, Jesus flips the coin over, as it were, and gives the picture of how the unfaithful servant is going to fare on the day of his master's return. And man, oh man. Is it a sobering picture? Is it not? To tweak the old adage, when the master's away, the servants will play. And unfortunately, that is true for some. Look at how that plays out here for these unfaithful servants in verse 45. They begin because there's no immediate lightning bolt when they're not being faithful as stewards of the Lord. No plague from on high. They begin slowly over time to lord it over others, even to abuse the other servants. They begin to selfishly use the master's resources on on indulging their own carnal desires. Man, oh man. Any conviction bubbling up yet? Consider, friends, how severe the punishment will be for the unfaithful servant on the day of the master's return. They're caught unawares. They are. This is graphic. This is Jesus. Cut in pieces and assigned a place with the unfaithful. What do we do about this? Well, I like Charles Spurgeon's exhortation. Spurgeon once said, Act as if Jesus would come during the thing in which you are currently engaged. And if you would be ashamed for Jesus to see you doing that, well, maybe 
that's a pretty good indicator you ought to stop. It's his stuff. They're his resources. It's his life. Isn't that what Paul taught us? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm dead. Everything I have is Jesus. That's, that's the biblical way to live. And Jesus wraps it all up. Let's, let's finish it here in verses 47 and 48 with these words. He says, The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act in according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who didn't know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, we talked in depth about this spiritual principle very recently. If you want to uh, go back and find that sermon, we'd be happy to, to send you uh, to it on our website or on YouTube or on your podcast of your choice. Suffice it to say this. Here's the biblical principle Jesus is laying down. There are, just as there are, varying degrees of rewards in heaven, so will there be varying degrees of punishment in hell. Nobody's throwing anything at me yet. We're okay. Okay. All sins are ultimately and eternally damning. The wages of sin is death. All sin, every single sin ever, wages of sin is death. But the severity of those punishments in eternal condemnation will not be the same. You just can't read it any other way, can you? There are some punishments which will be severe. What is he talking about? This is like the reckoning when Jesus comes back. The punishment of some will be severe. The punishment of others, although still punishment, will be lighter. This is never to whitewash the horror of hell. Separation from a gracious and good God for all of eternity. But the spiritual principle is quite clear. And again, we, we've talked about this a lot. We'll just move on. We'll, we'll let Jesus' words stand and we'll, we'll move on from here. The principle is the more light you have received, the more accountable you become for that light. Like how the early church father, Basil the Great, put it so simply, brilliant man, simple words, he said, our Lord Jesus Christ does not absolve from punishment even sins committed in ignorance. An ignorant sin is still a sin. Although he attaches a harsher threat to deliberate sins. Got the principle? Okay. Let's think about this biblically as we button it up for a minute here and think about application to our lives. First of all, let's just level. Which of us can honestly say that we have attained to this standard? Show of hands. 
that we have always kept our lamps burning, that we've always been found at the ready with our robe tucked in, our belt never fallen asleep on duty. We've always been waiting, poised for the door, that we've never mistreated God's other servants, that we've never selfishly indulged in the resources that He has graciously left at our disposal. Anyone feeling particularly righteous right now? Not me. Don't miss the gospel point. The point, the whole point that Dr. Luke is writing about here in this glorious gospel, dear friends, is that the master is away because he's going to die on a rugged cross for the sinfulness, for the gross mismanagement of time, talents, and treasures that have been given to us. That's the point. This is about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. This passage, like all passages, should lead us to see and Savior Christ as a gracious Redeemer and King, the only servant who has ever been faithful. And by His death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, He invites us into His reward. And when that happens... Not, not because we could ever earn with our own good works or our own perfect stewardship a place in His heaven, but because as unworthy servants saved by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone, because by His blood we have been forgiven and given a seat at His table, then and only then do we say, Oh Lord, I'm yearning to be faithful to You. I'm yearning for your return. I'm yearning like that good steward to manage my time and talents and gifts in such a way just to make you pleased upon your return. I'll leave you with this verse in 2 Timothy 4.8. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the saved, the faithful. He's talking about himself. He says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul says, A crown's coming to me. And listen, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Who gets a crown? Answer. All those who have loved his appearing. So he's coming. Do you think about that? I mean, really. Is this ever in your frontal lobe? Do you pray through this? How do you steward your life and your responsibilities and your gifts and your money, all of it, as a way to give honor and glory back to the king who bought you? There's some things, friends, in our lives right now that we need to cut out because the master's coming back. And there's some things in our lives that we are neglecting that we need to lean into because the master's coming back. You know, the last thing Jesus says in all of Scripture? Surely, I am coming soon. 
That's the last thing he's given to us. And the faithful response is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these simple and yet profound truths that you give us in your word. Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to live lives of urgency. Help us to cut out from our lives the nonsense that is not pleasing to you. The very things, Jesus, that you have died to save us from. Lord, forgive us for the times that we are selfish and slothful stewards. And Lord, help us now by the power of your Spirit to live such lives of earnest expectation that come what may, lives that embody a readiness for when that day, when you call us home or when you come home to be with us. We thank you, Jesus, for your grace and for your goodness in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name.